Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We've been in the book of John, and as we've come back from the summer kind of break, we've kind of taken our stand here in John 13 through 17, the upper room discourse and, and what Jesus is telling his disciples. If chapters 1 through 13 were marked by this invitation of Jesus to see the signs that he performed and to believe on him, chapters 14 through 17 are a call to his disciples to faithful living. Thus, it stands as an introduction to the Christian faith. And yet it poses some of the most intricate, deep, and beautiful reflection to be found in the New Testament. Some of Jesus' words here feel obscure and distant and, and, and hard to interpret. But they hold out for us the possibility of communion with God in Christ. See, you and I have about as much an idea about how to be a Christian as we do about how to be a jellyfish or a Venus flytrap or whatever else it is. It's completely foreign to us. The experience of being right with God is not natural to us. And so when Jesus speaks about the basics of the Christian faith, our ears should perk up. Perhaps you've had the experience of watching a Christian movie. Ever watch Christian movies? Okay, I'm just going to be a man of integrity and say they're all bad. Every one of them. It's not because the filmmakers are bad at their jobs or anything else. Fundamentally, what you're trying to do is take an internal reality and put it in a visible medium, and it's very impossible to do. That's why God told us not to make graven images in the Old Testament. I'm not saying, uh, just hear me, you get what I'm saying. It's really hard to take something that's internal, that is life inside of you, and put it on a screen. This morning, when we approach Jesus' words, it's going to do exactly that. It's going to describe an internal reality, communion with God and Christ through the Spirit so that we can understand it. We can put our hands around it and we can take it with us. A few years back, I had a friend of mine described to me a story. He wakes up, it's two o'clock in the morning, and his dog is going crazy in the backyard. And maybe you've had this experience. You, you hear an animal barking, 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 barking. You know something's wrong. And so he goes outside. He finds his outside dog in its pen. And, and sure enough, there is a possum in the corner. And the dog can't get to the possum, but the possum is trapped. And, and so this possum is in the corner. It is hissing. Its hair is raised. It just looks ugly even uglier than a possum would normally look. Cornered animals do strange things, don't they? They bare their teeth. They kind of make themselves look larger. They're gearing up for a fight. It's ready to fight you. But just as in our story, the, the cornered animal is in conflict because it's in some place that it shouldn't be. It's transgressed a boundary. It's crossed a line. See, you and I have uh, 
kind of the same experience. We find ourselves cornered. We bare our teeth. We arch our back. We uh, fundamentally are gearing up for a fight. We're not at peace because we have transgressed the boundary and we're ready to fight. See, fundamentally, we're not at peace because we have transgressed the boundary with God. And I wonder if, if millions of Christians this morning do not experience the peace of God because they're not obeying God. See, I think this is what John or Jesus wants to present to us in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. Our new life in the Spirit can make us obedient like Jesus, and that obedience invites us into the peace of God. Our new life in the Spirit that Jesus is going to talk to us about makes us obedient, just like Jesus will be obedient later on in our passage. We're going to see this in three different movements. In verses 15 uh, through 18, actually, that, that's wrong. Verses 15 through 17, the Spirit is life-giving proxy. It's a representation of Jesus himself, that, that Jesus has gone away, and now we have the Spirit with us, and, and Jesus is going to say, I'm not leaving you as orphans. And then in verses 18 through 26, the, uh, the Spirit is loving presence. And how do we fulfill the commandments? We, we fulfill it through love for Jesus so that we can uh, abide with Him. He can make our, His home with us. And then finally, we're going to see that Jesus gives lasting peace in verses 27 through 31. And so we can see I've done my Baptist thing. Life-giving proxy, loving presence, lasting peace. These are all benefits of this Christianity 101 that we've been discussing I want to dig in this morning, and we want to spend our time here kind of unpacking these kind of coded words that Jesus has for us. We want to start with this, that the Spirit is a life-giving proxy. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it, was, uh, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, Jesus starts off and he says that love is proved by obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Let's just be clear here this morning. Jesus is unequivocally saying that we cannot claim to love Christ when we are unwilling to obey him. In fact, this is stated all through John's writings in 1 John chapter, three, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Or 2 John chapter 1, verse 6, and this is love that we walk according to His commandments. See, throughout the New Testament, loving Jesus means obeying Him. But Jesus wants to provide a solution for our naturally wayward hearts. See, the truth of the matter is, that you and I won't obey God naturally. We are naturally rebellious against the God of the universe. And so we need help. And that's what he invites us to in verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper. Who is this helper? Jesus sends the Spirit as an advocate for our obedience, right? Verse 16 relates to verse 15 as a solution to this unstated problem. If we are to love Jesus in obedience, we need help. And so Jesus promises another helper. That word helper is, is unique here. It's the word parakletos. 
It's a word from which we get the term paraclete. That's one of those super religious sounding words. In the first century, it meant helper or advocate. It was kind of like a lawyer in a good way. (laughs) Right? It was when you were accused of something and you were in the jail cell, the advocate would come and he would speak on your behalf. He would advocate for you. He'd come alongside you. In fact, this word is used of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate and parakletos with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the Spirit has been with them, verse 17 says. Isn't that what he says there? He says, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you. These disciples have been with the Spirit. The Spirit's been doing its work in their midst. But what Jesus says next is shocking. He will be in you. His prepositions are important. Jesus is not uh, only sending them someone to live with them. He is sending the power of God to live in them. If you read Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah tells us about this this God who is going to write his law upon his people's hearts. That he was going to take this external law written on tablets of stone, and he was just going to stamp it on his people's hearts and minds. And that's how this happens. He's going to put His Spirit inside of us so that we know His words, we love His words, and we want to do what He says. See, the Spirit is the means by which God does this. If we are to show our affection for Jesus, our love for Jesus, it's expressed in Spirit-wrought obedience. I remember talking to a parent one time, and they were retelling a story about a a child who was just being um, disobedient at dinner. And so, uh, you know, the child's kind of acting out, and they just kind of have to constantly correct them and correct them. And finally, the child comes over them and, and tries to hug them and says, I love you. And the parent, this sounds harsh, but the parent looks back at them and says, if you love me, show it in obedience. Show it in how you obey. We can't claim to to love someone and then do exactly what they hate, right? You know, if your wife hates, that's a bad example. Never mind. We won't go down that road. Get myself in trouble there. See, we show our love by our obedience. This is important because Jesus would soon be leaving. And that's exactly where he turns in verses 18 through 20. In 18 through 20, he's going to invite us to this idea that he is leaving. And so uh, the Spirit is life-giving proxy, the presence of Jesus through the Spirit. But now he's loving presence. Look at verse 18 with me. John chapter 14. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let a, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will, or the will, excuse me, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love, my, love him and manifest myself to him. 
And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. See, when Jesus leaves, the world will not see but his disciples will. Jesus promises not to leave them as orphans, that he's going to come to them in some specific way. And this is kind of tough because he did just tell us that he was leaving. In John 13, 33, he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And of course, Jesus will be seen by his disciples after his resurrection. In fact, we'll see this in John chapter 20 and 21. He's going to appear to multiple disciples. So there's an immediate fulfillment of this passage. He's he's not leaving them. He's going to come back to them. Then he's going to leave again. So there's a, a more larger fulfillment wherein Jesus is speaking about the presence of the Spirit, that he's present with them as the Spirit indwells them, right? Some of you, this morning, you left your children in the nursery. You don't plan on leaving them there forever, at least I hope not. You'll come back. Right? There's that moment, that uh, heart-wrenching moment where you drop the kid off and they're screaming and crying, and you're saying, no, I'm coming back, I promise. I'm not leaving you forever. And Jesus is having this moment with his disciples. I'm not just abandoning you. But notice what Jesus does next. If if the disciples were concerned about Jesus' absence, he wants to tell them how he'll be present with them in their obedience. Verses 21 through 23, he says that, that our obedience is a means of our communing with God. Look at verse 21. It says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now listen to this. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and what? manifest myself to him. Jesus promises to show himself to those who love and obey him. He's not leaving them as orphans. He's going to manifest himself. Verse 23 repeats the same idea. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Notice here, it's not just Jesus manifesting himself. Now it's the Father and the Son coming and abiding with the people of God, making their home with him, God with man, Emmanuel, God with us. When Jody and I first got married, I remember going on our honeymoon. And, you know, it was fun when we went out on a date. I loved being present with my wife. I loved enjoying dating this woman. But when we were on our honeymoon, she was there all the time in a good way, right? I loved that. I loved the idea that she wasn't absent from me. She was present with me. She still is. See, Jesus is consistently present to his people in the Spirit. And when we commune with him, when we obey and express our loving obedience to God, he communes with us. Verses 25 through 26 give us another wrinkle in this equation. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. 
We have communion with God through loving obedience. And he puts his spirit inside of us to remind us of his words so that we can obey his words in love and in loving obedience experience his presence and his goodness and his mercy. Let's not lie to ourselves this morning. This is straight up existential kind of mystical theology. As Jesus is talking about communing with his people, not in a tangible, tactile way where we touch Jesus and we smell Jesus and we hear Jesus, but we know Jesus through the experience of communing with him and abiding with him in his presence. That happens through the uniqueness of his spirit put inside of us. See, love allows us to keep God's commands and experience his presence. You and I have never seen Jesus. We don't know what he looks like. We can't recount his appearance. We haven't been able to shake his hand or give him a hug. We're not sure how he smells or what his voice sounds like. But we should know his presence. Jesus has promised to make his home with us, with his obedient, loving disciples. And so as people who uniquely call themselves Christian, we should be familiar with Jesus, his presence. There's a story that came out this week about Queen Elizabeth listening to a podcast in this person's talking about there was an interview with one of her bodyguards and sure enough they were off somewhere in Scotland and uh, they met this family as they were just kind of out and about throughout the day and um, they said oh you're from London have you ever seen the queen of course they didn't recognize that she was the queen and so she has this awkward interaction and she's she says well he sees her every day turning to her bodyguard right And they're like, wow, that's amazing. You see the queen every day. So they go and get their picture taken with her bodyguard. (laughs) And she kind of interrupts and lovingly says, you should get your picture taken with me too, just because later on you're going to figure something out. See, there's times where we have to ask the question, how well did these people know the queen of England if they didn't recognize her? You and I are invited to experience the presence of Jesus, to know him through rich communion and obedience and love. Will we recognize Jesus when he shows up? It should be pretty distinct when he comes on the clouds, right? Nobody else really does that. Will you recognize Jesus by his loving actions, his gentle mercy, his kindness? His power, his authority. So Jesus tells us about this spirit that's life-giving proxy, that spirit's loving presence. And finally, he wants to press into this idea of lasting peace in verses 27 through 31. Look there now. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. 
He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus promises his peace. You can look at verse 27. He says it, right? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. We're so familiar with these verses, we might just kind of pass over them and not understand their meaning. Jesus doesn't give peace like the world. And you say, what does that mean? How does the world give peace? Well, the world's peace is entirely contingent. It's resting on some other hope outside of Jesus, some kind of horizontal hope that we have in this world. We say, I can have peace because my 401k is sufficient for my lifelong needs. I can have peace because the U.S. Army is capable of defending our homeland and our borders. I can have peace because my children are doing well academically. You see, we've placed our hope on these other external things, and they're contingent. Your 401k can disappear. Just ask anyone from 2008. Our armies aren't as strong as they could be. Our children might fail in so many ways. But Jesus' peace isn't contingent upon anything but his own sacrificial death. Romans 5 says this, Paul writes, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does our peace come from? It comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. So we have this peace that is always available and is contingent upon one thing, the constant advocacy of our Savior Jesus Christ before the throne of God, and that will never change. The peace that Jesus gives never goes away. It's never stripped from us. It doesn't rust or get eaten by moths or become destroyed. The peace that Jesus gives is eternal and lasting. And we might be tempted to think that the peace Jesus speaks of is is consistent with this promise of the Holy Spirit, but that's not necessarily what, what Jesus is talking about. Notice that the verb tenses are all wrong. In verse 16, Jesus says that he will send, future tense, will send another advocate, the helper. But here in verse 27, he is giving them peace in the present tense. That if he's giving them the peace right now, and yet the Spirit is yet to come, he's not talking about the Spirit. In fact, it might be better to align this peace that Jesus gives with his commandments. Remember, he gave us this new commandment in 1334 that we should love one another as he has loved us. It's been a running theme in his upper, upper room discourse about these commandments that are here. In fact, it's used a number of times in our passage this morning. But most importantly, he's already told us that obedience to his commandments is the key to his abiding presence in the Spirit. And so peace would seem to be a natural byproduct of our obedience to Jesus' commands. Yes, the Spirit will bring peace as it empowers us to live in righteousness. But what Jesus is speaking of here, the peace that he gives, is this possibility of obedience. We abide in Jesus' commands, and he offers us his peaceful presence. Verse 28 highlights that there's this separated priority. It seems like Jesus is kind of rebuking his disciples. He says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you if you loved me. You would have rejoiced. 
because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. This is a mild rebuke from Jesus. It highlights that they aren't quite there yet, that they aren't actually expressing true love just yet. But look at what Jesus has to say in verses 29 through 31. He doesn't just leave them in this condemnation. Verses 29 through 31, Jesus predicts and explains his coming suffering and obedience. Look at verse 29. He says, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. He predicts for belief. Jesus' prediction is that he's going away and will cause them to believe in his name, that he predicts this so as to bring about this thing of belief. Remember, as we're in John, this this concept of belief is so central to this gospel. It's the thing that, that John tells us was the purpose of his writing in John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus is predicting this absence, that he's going away so that others would believe in him. It reminds me of, of the 10 plagues. Remember in Exodus and, and the 10 plagues that Moses kind of declares uh, to Pharaoh? And the process is this. Moses kind of steps into Pharaoh's presence. He hears the words of God and he comes into Pharaoh's presence and he tells Pharaoh exactly what's going to happen. And sure enough, he leaves Pharaoh's presence and he goes and does the exact thing that was going to happen. He predicted it and then he did it. And it highlighted the power and authority of God. Jesus is doing and accomplishing the same thing. But he doesn't just predict for belief. He predicts for clarity. Look at verses 30 through 31. He says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Who's that? Satan, the ruler of this world, the one that we hear about that he prowls around like a roaring lion. This enemy, as it were, the one who showed up in the garden as a snake that deceived Adam and Eve, that kind of ushered sin into God's creation. This one who stands as our betrayer as our accuser before the throne of God, the the one who is constantly trying to undermine faith, trying to pull us out of our belief in Christ. That one is coming. Look what Jesus says at the end of verse 30. He has no claim on me. What does that mean? He has no claim on me. Satan has no dirt on Jesus. There's no skeletons in Jesus' closet to be manipulated, to be taken advantage of. Jesus has lived a righteous life before all the world through all of the pressures of, of, of interacting with Pharisees and everything else. He has lived true righteousness. And now this kind of betrayer, this accuser has nothing to accuse Jesus of. He has no claim on me. Look what he says next. But I do as the Father has commanded me. (laughs) Jesus isn't just passively righteous to not perform the wrong things that Satan wants to accuse him of. He's actively pursuing righteousness. He's doing what the Father has called him to do. He is obeying his father's command. 
I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father, right? There's that link then, obedience and love. Jesus loves his Father so much that he's willing to go to his own death to express obedience to his Father. And so what we were called to earlier on in this uh, speech of Jesus was to show our love through our obedience. Now Jesus is patterning for us in his self-sacrificing death. See, Jesus was obedient so that we also might be obedient. Jesus' obedience at Calvary makes our obedience possible. Jesus says these things in this, this section. And they're confusing to us. We, we kind of glossed over them a little bit. But he says this. He says, the world neither sees him or will neither see Jesus nor know him. And in verse 18, he says, the world will see me no more. This isn't just a statement of Jesus' kind of physical absence. This is a statement of the world's inability to see the lordship of Jesus. Romans 8 says this, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that, that the, the, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, that we have this kind of mental block. We have this veil covering our eyes that we cannot see the glory of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right? Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I have these, like, we've got these blinders on, and it's like we can't see Jesus for who he is. Ephesians says it with even greater clarity. He says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. It's not that you were just half-hearted or lazy or incapable or needed help. You were dead. There was no part of you that was alive to God. What, what did dead men do? They do nothing, right? There was no spiritual sensitivity. There was no awareness to God. There was no fear of God. There was no adherence to His commands. There was no life with God. There was nothing. There was just deadness. And in contrast, Jesus tells us that in verse 19 that he, because He lives, we also will live. Hidden in these statements is this rich theology of vivification that God would raise us up and make us alive with Christ. That's what Paul would say in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Right? See, Jesus' obedience to the Father led him to Calvary. It, it's by his obedience that we can be obedient. Jesus died that we can die. He lives so that we can live. And the good news, Christian, is that you don't have to do the impossible. You don't have to just try and grind out this constant obedience to appease this God who's way off in the distance. You, Christian, have the Spirit of God indwelling you so that you can obey 
here and now, empowered by his presence in the spirit. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. I think most of our struggles to obey often have to do with our lack of trust in his promise. You and I would go about our day. We get to two o'clock, we're tired, right? Lunch is starting to settle in. You're sitting at your desk and your mind starts to wander and you forget the hope of Jesus Christ. You're driving on the freeway, the guy cuts you off and for moments you just forget the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Your kid says that thing to you that just makes you just, yeah. You forget the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You, you stop communing with Jesus and the Father through the Spirit. That's why we do what we do. See, Jesus sets in front of us these two concepts. He says that there's a love-wrought obedience, and then he puts in front of us this concept of peace. And if we're not careful, we can keep these two things vacuum-sealed and separate from one another. We can say, well, Jesus provides peace, but it's completely independent of my love-wrought obedience. But I think Jesus wants to smash those two concepts together. He wants us to see that if we're not going to be oriented toward love-wrought obedience, we will not experience peace. Jesus promises peace to those who express loving kindness to Jesus in their obedience. See, when we obey, we live in God's world by his approved way. Obedience is how we run with the grain of God's world. Imagine just a second, you just, you're driving into New York City. In my whole life, I've spent six hours in New York City. We're the longest six hours of my life. Imagine you're driving into New York City and you can't read street signs. You don't know where you're going. You don't know which streets are one-way streets. You don't know how to turn or where you're headed. You don't know anything. You're just driving around. See, this morning when we refuse to listen to God's words and we choose to do things our own way, Not only does it foster a general confusion in us, it's dangerous to ourselves and others. In the same way you're driving around New York City and you're pulling down a one-way street in the opposite direction, when we refuse to obey the laws of God, we put ourselves in danger. We put ourselves in harm's way. We refuse to run with the grain of God's universe. We find ourselves just at odds with the existence of God. Why do we have such high depression rates? Why do we have this rise in these things called mental illness? Is it, is it not because we've just embraced so many patterns of sin? See, it should be no surprise then that our obedience to God allows a, cer- a certain quality of peace in our lives. It's worth noting that Jesus will soon tell us that our horizontal lives will not be marked by peace. Peace. You know, there's a passage that's coming down the road where Jesus says, hey, those who hated me are going to hate you in John 16. So it's not to say that we always have this horizontal life of blessing and peace, but we do have an internal peace that is provided by Jesus and his sacrifice for us. 
See, peace and obedience go hand in hand. We might differentiate here for a second. Because there's this thing that we might call natural obedience. It's this way of going about life where we're just kind of pulled about by our desires. There's a way where we can be just disobedient because we're drug around by the nose of our desires, right? And we just kind of rebel against what God wants for us. I find myself too often in that hardened state of rebellion against what God wants for me. There's another way that we can be looking like we're obedient, but inwardly still be rebellious in our spirit. We call this a half-hearted or mixed-motive obedience. Too often, I do good things with bad motives. I pray and read for the sake of keeping up a discipline. I I shut down a gossip-filled conversation because I want to feel spiritually superior. Mixed motive obedience is always on the verge of being discovered for the fake that it is. It's, It's going to the market with fool's gold and saying, this is the real deal. It wants to convince everyone of its righteousness while secretly harboring sinfulness. And I'm telling you, there's no peace to be found in this mixed motivation self-righteousness. See, when we harbor disobedience or mixed motive obedience, we should not be surprised when our peace is lacking. But supernatural obedience yields supernatural peace. So we might have natural obedience led about by the nose of our desires, but supernatural obedience that's trusting in the Spirit, treasuring Christ, it should lead to a supernatural peace, shouldn't it? Notice that Jesus talks about love-oriented obedience in in verse 15. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And immediately in verse 16, turns us to a divine helper, the Holy Spirit. We need God's help to commune with God. We cannot escape this reality. Your Christian life is not just getting our sins covered by Jesus and trying to do better. It is a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment reliance upon, by God or upon God for God. Let me say that again because I tripped over my own tongue. It's a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment reliance upon God for God, for more of His fullness, more of His glory, more of His beauty so that we can apprehend and understand the fullness of who He is and be pushed into future obedience because of the magnificence of Jesus Christ. You see, this morning you might find yourself questioning. Questioning uh, your patterns of obedience. Too many times when, when we hit upon this subject, it raises something to the surface of our hearts, this questioning, am I really in Christ? Am I really a Christian? I don't do the things I want to do. And I don't want to falsely apply salve to an open wound that really needs healing. I don't want to give you a false assurance this morning that you are in Christ when you're not. But it's worth noting that when Paul writes in Romans 7, he says, the things I hate, I do. 
And that leads to this statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. See, Christian, the truth is you will strive for obedience. You will strive for the spirit-wrought, love-rooted obedience, and someday you'll fail, right? In fact, probably by the end of today, you'll fail. By the end of this sentence, you'll fail. So what we need is not to just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of Christianity. What we need is a massive view of Jesus Christ clear understanding of how we commune with him and are empowered to righteous living with him. John Newton, you might recognize the name because every time you sing Amazing Grace, that's the guy who wrote it, right? John Newton was raised by a Christian mother. She taught him the faith. She prayed that he would actually become a pastor But Newton just rejected this. And he joined the English Navy, but was quickly kind of kicked out. He was whipped and discharged. What happened is that Newton, in his desperation, kind of became more and more tied to the slave trade. So initially, he started to work for a slave trader named Clow, and he was treated incredibly poorly and eventually left. But as he continued to work in the slave trade, he eventually captained his own ship and had a number of experiences there until the point where he was shipwrecked. He was lost. And there he sat on an island, left for dead. He lit a signal fire, as it were, and sure enough, someone found him. He once was lost, but now is found. They send this ship ashore. They pick John Newton up. They bring him back. He gets in, and somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, they hit a massive storm. This is from the Banner of Truth's website. The storm was terrific. And when the ship went plunging down into the trough of the sea, few on board expected her to come back up again. The hold was rapidly filling with water, and as Newton hurried to his place at the pumps, he said to the captain, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. His own words startled him. Mercy, he said to himself in astonishment. Mercy? What mercy can there be for me? This is the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. And about six in the evening, the hold was free from water, And then came a gleam of hope. I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. And I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call him father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. Newton calls out for mercy in the midst of his rebellion. There he is, isolated, shipwrecked because of his rebellion against God and God brings him near. Now, this is Newton later on in his life. He writes this, and it's on the screen. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Maybe this morning you resonate with that. You're not what you wish to be. You're not what you hope to be. By God's grace, you are what you are. 
proclaim it. Know it. Love the grace of God that he's brought about in you. Yes, you struggle. Yes, you rebel. But God graciously brings you back to repentance. And now through his presence, through the spirit, empowers you to righteous living. Amen? Let's be those who press into the grace of God that we might please God with our obedience. Let's be those who self-sacrifice our desire to see the exaltation of Jesus. Right? Let's pray. Father, we bring that very desire to you that you would make us collectively a people of obedience. That as we rely upon the Spirit and we commune with you and with the Father, you make us obedient. Lord, help us to love what you love and to hate what you hate so that you would receive all glory and honor in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.